Welcome to KCADV Certification Series. You are listening to Module 1, History of Domestic Violence and Expectations and Challenges of Advocacy. We hope you review the materials that have been sent to you, or you can visit certification.kcadv.org forward slash Moodle. Welcome to KCADV Certifications Podcast Series. This is Module 1, History of Domestic Violence, along with Expectations and Challenges of Advocacy. And with me today is Darlene Thomas. She is the Executive Director at Greenhouse 17, and I am Diane Fleet, also with Greenhouse 17. So we have Greenhouse 17 team here today. (laughs) Hello. We do. Yes. We kind of know each other. Yes, Mm -hmm. we do. I'm going to start right out with, so we're going to talk about advocates, right? So this is something that I often hear in my role. I often hear new advocates say, I'm not prepared to handle the myriad of issues that a victim might need for support. What do you say to the 25-year-old new advocate when they are starting to delve into the very complex issues of domestic violence, sexual abuse, immigration, oppression of being in the system, substance use, mental health. They're all such big, complex, messy things. And we ask a lot of a brand new advocate just starting out in their world. And we do this, you know, certification process and we do a 40-hour training and then we go, go forth. So do you have some words of comfort or do you have some advice for these new for these new folks that are be joining in on this podcast? So run is probably not the appropriate answer no, at this moment, no. right? No, absolutely not to run. No, I think the best words of advice. Well, first, most people have already probably delved into it a little bit even before they're listening to this podcast. So, you know, they're already being met with those challenges. So the answer that I would give the words of wisdom would be to breathe, to take time to know that it's not okay. I mean, that it's okay not to have all the answers. What we really need to do is practice on being present for other human beings and just kind of absorbing the knowledge, the information that's coming to you. Make sure that you use colleagues and supervisors to kind of bounce really more critical, serious issues that you're not sure what to do with. And know that it just takes time. This doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. You can go to school forever when you really have to sit with human beings is when you really are humbled to realize what we don't know and how serious this truly is beyond the textbooks or beyond what somebody trained you 40 hours about because it's real and it's in front of you and it weighs heavy and it changes the who that you are. It, you don't go back to being you know, the student that came to this work. Like It just shifts your awareness and the acute reality of what people do to other human beings. So that kind of weight is important that you take time to breathe and you take time to reflect and that you don't take ownership over other people's stories or issues, but to know that this part of the learning curve. And I promise in about three years, I don't know, there's this magic marker about three years. Three years is what it takes to grow. Like I don't want new employees to have all the answers. I don't think you're going to fix complex situations. If that were the case, we wouldn't need our services. We could just have our wands. You know, I go through the building all the time when people complain or fuss about something's happened with residents or our families. And I just go, where's that magic wand? It doesn't exist. The magic is the you that you bring to the work. That's the magic. And you just got to give it time to do its job. But if you give yourself grace and each other grace, I think you'll do much better and be around for a lot longer. One of the things that I think you and I've talked about many times, but the unique experience of working in a shelter setting. So not everybody listening in in this is in a shelter setting. They might be in community. They might be doing non-residential support groups, courts, whatever. But there's a unique experience of being in the shelter setting where you're with someone 24-7 and you're not there just for that one to three o'clock appointment every other Wednesday or that Tuesday night support group. But you have such opportunity in the house to be present with people and to begin to build that relationship and trust. And I think advocates sometimes think that every encounter has to be this meaty encounter, right? Like I've got to talk about this. I got to fix this. We got to talk about this case plan, goal plan. We got to do their history. But we miss sometimes the importance of the more subtle interactions that can take place in shelter. Well, absolutely. I think if you're doing other pieces of the work, if you start this work in outreach or doing public education or, you know, professional trainings, things like that, you are a little more protected 
from the heaviness of the work because you're only bumping into it through courts. Not that it's not heavy because you're still hearing horrible stories, but you're getting pieces and fragments. Your bigger frustration is going to be systemically anyway, right? How the courts do things or what the police did or didn't do or how people did or didn't respond to the survivor. So your lens becomes a little different. In shelter, it is encompassing. It's all of those things. It's systems and how the barriers that survivors have that are frustrating as an advocate that you're trying to help navigate and negotiate with the survivor. But it's also, you know, realizing that, you know, it is important for survivors just to kind of know where they're living and what that feels like. And so to play, to have fun, to go out back and just sit with somebody. It doesn't have to always be in depth to say hello, to smile when you walk in the door. It means the world, the survivors. When you're in shelter, you know, it's like living in your own home. The things and the intimacies that take place in your own home it's not what you give to everybody that comes visits, right? The same, but in shelter, you're kind of part of their own home. It's the home. And so we are seeing survivors at their most real, vulnerable, messy selves. And so I think it's just important just to check in and be and play and have fun and look at things beyond violence because survivors are much more than the violence and they've endured. And we need to find those pieces of survivors as well. I think one of the things too that new folks in this work often struggle with is, okay, I'm going to kind of get to this place of being comfortable and being present and just being part of and, and beginning to learn how to build trust and build that connection with folks. But I always like the term intellectual curiosity. I don't know if I got that first from you or from someone else. I think maybe the intellectual curiosity, I think I've used the word curiosity a little bit. As you're beginning to find, connect with folks, digging in a little bit to find out what makes that brings them joy, what brings what makes them tick will then evolve to as you're beginning to get their history. And I think this is you know me, darling, and I tend to ask questions in a really backward sort of way. But we are taught as advocates to believe, believe, believe. Whatever that survivor tells us, we are here to believe you and your story. But sometimes when there's like lack of trust or we're just beginning to figure out who we are, sometimes we have to dig a little bit to find out really what's going on. And we find that that can be unsettling for some advocates. They might find it to be a little disrespectful or I don't, I don't believe what they're telling me, especially when you're dealing with substance use maybe or behavior that is maybe not quite as healthy or they're not quite as proud of it. But if we're not talking about that, can we really be doing good advocacy if we're not dealing with a person in whole? So do you have any suggestions for folks as they're beginning to push a little bit, just push a little bit into that curiosity, into those uncomfortable conversations? That was a really long question. That was a very long question with an hour's worth of answers. But wow, we might have to go revisit some pieces of that. We will. I would say that it is in the building of the trust. When we say believe, 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 it just means we believe that trauma has occurred and that their life has been affected by that. That doesn't mean we have to believe every word (laughs) that necessarily comes out. You know, uh, it's the reality of the survivor. It's not my job to question, you know, their truth or their reality in the beginning. It's my job to listen and to hear. And then through experience and time, I will also start to understand how you begin to realize or how you begin to read between the lines a little bit better. It's not about winning or being right either as an advocate. So sometimes I've heard that too, like they're lying to me. They're not being truthful. Well, that's okay. Let's find out why. What is the reason that survivors who need our help, who, who are the most vulnerable, they come live in shelter or they're coming to our services, things aren't great in their lives or they wouldn't be seeking our help, right? So let's find out what's underneath that. Why do people lie? Has that been self-preservation? Do they believe we won't believe them? Do they believe we won't judge them? Is this say as much about us, we as an organization, we as a program, we as an individual doing the work as it does about the survivor? So sometimes we create the barriers, but it doesn't mean you should never either challenge too. If things don't make sense that what's being told to you, that is important. It's To me, it's neglectful in some ways not to challenge a resident for truth and then invite why why is it hard like it's hard for me to help you if you can't be honest with me right like and i get why you wouldn't be honest why would you trust me right you know we've known each other a short time but for us to get from here to here you know for you to really reach these goals and the things that i'm hearing you say you need you know, what is it going to take for us to get to that kind of trusting relationship? Because even if you feel like you need to use, if you lie to me, then I'm afraid that something terrible is going to happen to you. 
I would rather help you do that safely, right? right? If you really are not ready to end your relationship with your abuser, there's nothing about our organization that requires you to do that, right? I don't, if you're not ready to do that, then let's talk about safety. Should you decide to see your partner? Should you decide to go, you know, visit or meet up for a little while or, you know, have discussions, you know, let's talk about your safety, safety planning. And so the more that we can invite advocates and you say intellectual curiosity, you know, I think the best advocates on the planet are really nosy. That's probably the best word for it. You're just nosy and not because you trying to be meddling in everybody's business all the time necessarily, but it's nosy because you care. It's nosy because you're trying to think about things that maybe survivors don't think of as part of their survival. They don't always see their safety risks. So if we're a little nosy and we say, hey, are you, you know, have any intentions of talking to your partner that hurt you or going to meet them or visiting them and they go and they own up to it? Yes, we have. Well, then let's talk about safety. But if you hadn't been nosy, if you don't ask, then you can't help. Right. I sometimes wonder in our way of sometimes blocking that off of not being nosy, of not delving a little bit deeper. And sometimes folks will say, well, I'm doing it out of respect. They'll come to me when they're ready to come to me. I don't want to push. You know, I don't want to do those things. I think sometimes it really is for self-preservation to use your term just a second ago that you did. I'm not comfortable going there. And thank goodness they didn't take me there. Right. So if I don't ask that we can't go there and then everybody's good. Right. We're just going to sit out here and have a bologna sandwich and be happy about it because I've not dug into the substance use that might be going on because I just don't want to even venture in. And even to take that a little bit step back a bit, we always want programs to screen in rather than screen out. Heard you say it the other day. And so I think that same thing can kind of play out there. What are we afraid of that we're screening out versus screening in? Like, what's that motivation and why is it so important that we approach the the phone call, the crisis line, the the court advocacy in a screening in mentality rather than a screening out mentality? Again, multiple questions. I know. So I know. the first answer would be a lot of it is self-preservation for advocates. I think I've heard over the years, there's a fear that somehow you're going to take a survivor to a place they can't come back from. You know, you're going to push them over the edge and they're going to have breakdowns in the whole nine yards. And that's not true. A, we don't have that power. B, survivors give us what they're willing to give us based on the relationships we're able to do. And we'll, they'll give pieces of themselves as they're ready. So we don't have that capacity. There's no skill set. You're not going to do harm. You do more harm by not asking than you do by asking. The other things that I want advocates to really think about is we only have a short time. It is not like if, if you've gone to school and you, you know, a lot of times I think you learn that you should just be patient and, and people should tell you their story and let them divulge that when they want to. Look, we got a month, two months, three months of time to really have a long-term impact before survivors move on. We don't have two years of therapy for them to set through. So the more we can engage and question and bring to light and help survivors understand their barriers and their batterers, what to expect and how to be safe and what that can look like for the future, the, the better. Like we don't have a lot of time, so we need to get to it. And curiosity is one way to do it. You mentioned batterers. And so that was really the next place I wanted to go to. So in, in all of this nosiness or curiosity and building trust and building relationship, it's often really about the survivor that's in front of you. Why is it so critical that we hear about the perpetrator too and the tactics that abusers use? Well, I think we spend a lot of time talking about survivors, right? And their behaviors and what they do or don't do and how they get out and how many times it takes them to get out and all these basic, you know, facts about intimate partner violence. The problem with that is, is we don't know the batterer, right? And if we don't know the batterer, it's really hard to help a survivor. If you think about it, survivors, when they come to us, the one thing, they already know they've been victimized. They already many times can identify multiple ways that they've used their own tactics in order to survive or mitigate or navigate and negotiate a violent relationship. They're kind of attuned to that. They've probably missed some pieces that you're going to help bring to light, the other coping skills and mechanisms that are going to present themselves. But what they always want to know is why does our, my partner do this? That is their number one question. Why, why, why? I've tried to be good. I've tried to be kind. You know, I've tried to do everything asked for me. I followed the family rules. I, you know, I've given everything I know to give. So what is it about me that is not worthy enough 
of the love of the person that said they love me, but it definitely is not showing it. And so I think that's the questions of, you know, for survivors to understand the only way you can really help the survivor as an advocate is to understand batters and batters behaviors, because then we can put a new lens. We can take the lens off themselves and what they're doing or not doing and put it right back on the batter. And I do think that's a huge component that's missed in our field is understanding batters very, very well so that we can often anticipate what the batter might do next or not going to do next. And then every time those things come to fruition, then survivors think and go, oh, this is about them. This is about the batter's behavior, not about me. Because see, I'm not even there. And the batter's going through a cycle. You know, one minute they're threatening and the next minute they're begging. And the next minute they're pleading and, you know, telling me the world will be different. And I'm not even there and they're doing it. So it's critical for survivor. I mean, for advocates to take time to learn about batters and batters. It, it will help them more than anything with survivors. It's probably scary at first, right, as a victim to kind of feel that you don't have some control to navigate how the relationship will go. And I imagine a lot of women will spend a great deal of time amending their own behavior and personality in hopes that they're mitigating or navigating the violence, right? If I mm-hmm. only did this, if I did this better. And when you get to the point where you kind of lose hope or control of the belief that you can make those changes, then I think you might go through a little bit of, I don't mean to go through stages of grief, but you might go through a little bit of a helpless stage of, I don't know. But then if you can turn the corner and do as you just said, and really like, let's put this back on the batterer's behavior. And when you're saying that, are you talking more about the tactics that batterers use so you can sort of safety plan around what tactic they might take next? Are you really talking more about the motivation as to why they Both. Both. It's both. So survivors need to understand that the motivation comes from power and control. We can say that all day long and we can give examples of their experience in that. But to be able to explain how that benefits the batter or this particular batter. So there's different types of batters and, you know, they happen on a continuum. It's not that everybody fits in one box as a batter by any means. But when we understand those, then I can say, oh, you know, that's, you know, kind of typical behavior of a batter. And so you might see this, this, is this true about your partner? Have they done, utilize these tactics of power and control? And they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you can go, oh, but this is how it's benefited them. This is what they may do next. So we need to be really careful when we go to court. They're probably already got paperwork. Anything you've ever written, anything you've ever done, they've probably already have that ready to go into court to hold against you, any text you've ever sent. like So you as an advocate can start to understand batters well enough that you can help survivors navigate their safety by understanding uh, not only the batter and the batter's behaviors, but how it benefits them. And that it doesn't just end because they left. You know, we talk about all time in this work in this field that the most dangerous time for a victim is when the batter or is when the victim leaves. And that is true. And we know that. But do we know why? And are we able to help survivors understand why and why it doesn't just go away? Batters are not going to quit. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're at shelter and we can keep you safe as long as you're in this building. But beyond that, there are no guarantees with batters and batters behaviors. And the one thing we don't know about batters specifically is which ones will kill and which ones won't. So we need to be preparing every survivor for the reality that when they even leave our programs or go back into their homes and they've gotten a protective order or they've gone to court or they're in our groups, that the reality is, is that the batterers make the choice of what happens next. All we can do is try to anticipate and predict it based on the batter behavior. But if you don't know batters, we're kind of leaving ourselves and survivors left to still navigate and guess all the time. Just vulnerable. Just vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. That's the best word, vulnerable. Yeah. It's one of the things that I've really noticed. I don't know why I've noticed it so much lately because I think it's always happened, but there seems to be this, I think domestic violence shelters serve an amazing purpose. It does wonderful things. It's it's needed as a safe place, as a rest, as a space for folks to kind of build what their next level may be. But it's not the be all end all and it's not the answer. And I sometimes see our own staff as well as, I mean, Greenhouse just domestic violence advocates in general, but also community partners. And I think, again, it's a little bit, I don't know what to do with this person, but if I can just get them to shelter, done. You know, it's like checked off, like we've resolved this. And it's like, you know, it's okay for this person to come to the domestic violence shelter, but what's going to happen in a month? Like you're having this person leave her house in another county with all of her support system 
in about a month, we're just going to be talking about going right back to that process. So is there something differently we can do? Because the battering doesn't stop. It might look different. The tactics might look different. Things are still going to be in place. And, and maybe you do need a month or two to regroup, maybe. But I also see sometimes there's just this presumption that we just need to bubble and cocoon victims of domestic violence for the rest of their life without the reality that at some time they're going to go back out into that Yes, you community. can't live in shelters forever. You can't. You know, and nor would you want to, in no. all honesty. As so, lovely and beautiful as uh -huh. it is. Yeah. yeah. And so that is true. And I think the way that we do that is through that sense of understanding the batter. And then if you know that, then you can help put together a safety plan even after. You know, I think shelters provide enough time so the gift of shelter is, yes, that immediate safety. And then they have each other. You reduce isolation. You've got support groups. You've got interventions. You're giving people love who have not experienced genuine love and care from a very about you kind of perspective, right? We're, we're, you know, So that's our job as advocates is to give love where nothing is needed back. It is just to be given kind of thing. And I think that's important for a lot of survivors to have. It can be very disrupting too, depending on their the situation, you know, I think the real hazard is that we don't often, we're looking for this answer without any batter or accountability. Does that make sense? Yes. You know, you were sending them to shelter as this quick fix and it has lots of benefits, but it is not undoing the batters or the batters behaviors. The gift of it might be the fact that at least we have a little opportunity if we can keep them safe for a short time to figure out what that batter might be doing and not doing. Right. Right. Are they stalking? Are they going after them? Are she ish that individual getting a hundred texts a day? You know, are they cutting off their cell phone service? Are they able to access Facebook pages and other forms, you know, cyber stalking, all those things that we should be looking for as advocates should always be trying to figure out what those batters steps are and look like. And then help figure out what next. You know, some people may have to relocate for good because we just don't or can't find a way to put people back safely in their communities. I think the best option always for a survivor is to keep them out of shelter and safe in their communities when possible. That's the best option for the yeah. kids, for her, you know, for the community, for everything they're already engaged in. If we have good community accountability and we can kind of gauge and monitor the batter and the batter's behavior and wrap them in a safety plan, can't always be done. But shelters are not the answer for everybody and nor are protective orders for everybody or the legal justice system. Every survivor has its own, you know, they have their own story and every batter has, uses tactics based on that survivors. You know, batters change their tactics depending on who they're with. They don't quit battering. They just batter somebody just new, but they might change those tactics depending on that next partner and the vulnerabilities and the strengths and weaknesses of the next partner. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's incredibly important as advocates that we understand battering. Nice. Thank you. I'm so glad that you brought up the just giving time sometimes to love on people. I don't think we talk about that as enough and I'm really not delving into it at this moment either. But there's something hokey about it, I guess, or people don't feel that that's, I don't know, the, the professional thing to do. But I really do think showing gratitude, showing love, showing care is so much of what you know, our families really need. And I think we sometimes feel we're overstepping or that's not our role or, or I'm, my boundaries are a little off and that's not what I'm supposed to do. So I really encourage folks that are listening into this to really reevaluate that concept and re-question, re-question a word. Because if you're not showing love to our families, then you might not be doing this work fully. Well, if you don't have love for them, then I think we need to think about, is this the work for us on some level? And I don't mean that as a negative way to challenge systems. I do think sometimes we're trained a different way, you know, around boundaries and things. And boundaries are extremely important in this work as well. But honestly, I mean, the vulnerability of survivors who find their way through our doors require, in my opinion, that the person on the other side of that door genuinely care to the, their bones about what happens to that survivor and that they are a part of that system, that they are a part of that journey with them, not as the helper or the fixer, but as an equal party 
willing to kind of join hands or join forces as a survivor navigates it. Now, survivors don't always welcome all of that with open arms. They don't trust it. They've got a whole host of reasons why it may take time. But I think the best compliment, I think what has driven me over all these years of doing the work has always come down to, I, I love our survivors. I just, every one of them, in every bit of messiness and strength and beauty and ugh, frustration, they can be sometimes, but a genuine love is what I think is, if you carry that, then you'll be around for a long time, I think. And I think that's what every survivor deserves on the other side of that door. So talking about coming in that door and walking in that door, let's talk a little bit about programs and shelter programs. And let's talk a little bit about rules and shelter because <laughs> it's your favorite topic. But yeah. it's that same concept, right? It's like the goal isn't to manage people, right? The goal isn't to, you know, I don't know, create a structure that is power over on folks, but that you're inviting them into a home or a house or a space that is loving and caring and can adapt to and respond to their messiness, which we should expect as a person in trauma, right? That's right. And we should be there to respond to the needs of their children as they're experiencing their trauma and moving and shifting and mom's in a space, right? So how do we kind of embrace all that? And I don't quite know if we could do that with a lot of strict rules. So I do know this is one of your favorite subjects. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about the no rule philosophy, but yet still give us the idea that you can still have structure in your programming? Yeah, the no rules are for the residents, not the staff, <laughs> A. So that means you can have a no rules program, but have a, tons of structure for survivors and for the staff in order to be able to implement programming. You can have both. And I think it can get lost. People think it's one way or the other. And I think what happens is, is every time something bad happens or challenges us or we're fearful might happen again, something may happen again, we start to create rules in order to mitigate future incidences. And the problem is it never does. And I think it takes time. I think a new employee, so folks listening to the podcast are fairly new to this work. And so there's going to be a sense of, I need rules. If you just tell me what to do, you know, I just had this the other day with one of the staff, just, would you just tell me what to do? And I go, it's not that simple. You're working with a human being. I wasn't there. You tell me what you think needs to be done. We'll look at answers. And it's like, ugh, they roll their eyes at me and grunt. Like, there she goes again, won't tell you anything, you know, indecisive. And it's not I'm being smiling indecisive. Because I can envision this whole conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wasn't there, but I, I'm with you. Yes. Yeah. Well, I've probably done it to you many times yeah. as well. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, because it's not that simple and there are many avenues with human beings, not just a clear cut answer. And so I think though, when we're young in this work, we really, really want that answer of how to do the work because we need to feel competent. And so I need to always keep going back and going, this isn't about you. Your competency will come. It's going to take time. This is about them. This is about service to others. Therefore, it is a learning curve. It is a process. Nobody fits into a box. We will not be a cookie cutter program. Everybody is unique and different in that approach. And as challenging as that is, I promise you, one day, if I try to put structure in, I guarantee you, for the most part, if I, you know, to a meeting and said, well, you know what? From now on, everybody will have to be in their room at nine o'clock. I would have the majority of our staff would go, what? We're not treating people like children. Are you kidding me? Oh, you know, like they would be furious with me because those that do the work long enough begin to realize that rules actually hurt your ability to help others. That's interesting. Dig into that. Well, I mean, they just they hinder your creativity. They hinder the individualism that comes with survivors. It hinders your ability to, you know, navigate each individual story and situation because you're having to treat everybody the same. And you will never do so. You will never do so. I mean, programs in, in the past, I've been a part of programs that had much more or many more rules, you might say, expectations. So what that created was this dynamic of the good advocate and the bad advocate, which was terrible. Like, why would we do that to each other? So the good advocate were the ones that broke the rules all the time. I was probably one of those good advocates. I wasn't that I was that great. It's just the residents figured out who to come to when they needed a rule broke. 
right? That didn't mean I was better than the people. The other people, gosh, love them, were doing what was expected. They were kind of following the rules, the rules set forth by that organization. But yet they would get labeled bad, you know? And really, I was just manipulated and they couldn't be. And we were following rules that shouldn't have been in place anyway. And then we're all sitting around wondering why we had to exit somebody from shelter because their kid ate cookies in a bedroom. Right. Because it was their third time that food was in the bedroom. And you're going, really? We're going to put somebody, where's the success in that? And where were we for her? And what have we missed and done? So rules really stifle your ability to serve others. Now, now to get back to structure, that does not mean you don't have structure. You can have structure in your facility. You can have, you know, nine o'clock, get up and go morning, you know, sessions for people. And, you know, you can have expectations that, you know, people are moving around and up and about and, and things like that. It just means the rules say that if you worked all night long, then you're probably not one that needs to be up at nine because you didn't get off till seven in the morning. It just means you get to meet the individual where they are instead of the individual having to meet the program. And that's re- really what it means. Yeah. And it really, I think, also sort of sets different expectations, right? So if you have no rules and you have no, well, not rules, if you have no structure and you have no expectation that people are going to do things, I don't know that that sets a very positive message either, right? And so we have expectation that you're going to come to so many groups and we have expectation that you're going to do this and take care of your room and take care of your kids and work your goal plan that you've self-defined. And if you're not, then we can revisit what seems to be the obstacle. But you're right. When you have when you have a lot of rules, you're either spending all your time figuring out how to break the rules or you're enforcing rules that are making matters worse. Well, exactly. And then you're forcing people to lie to you and just not be truthful right? ever, you know, because... Why? All I need to do then, I'm just going to stay here until I get an apartment and I'm just going to do what I have to do to get through. And then we've missed such a beautiful opportunity to have been in you know, service to others and to have created an environment where people could go back and go, that was an important place for me to be. You know, I just talked to a young woman. I'm telling you, when she was in shelter, she was difficult. <laughs> she was not easy at all. Ugh, questioned everything, mad all the time you know, felt like we were controlling and we're not controlling at all. You know, we don't have bedtimes and we don't have times you have to be in or any of those things, but it was her issue. She was young. And so um, she called, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. I said, how are you doing? I'm so glad you called. Like I haven't heard from you for a while. And I said, uh, and she said, I'm doing great. I've got a job. Would you do this? Would you help me? And I thought, I'm so glad you called because I wasn't really sure how you felt about your experience when you were here. <laughs> and she got really tickled. She said, I was a total pain in the butt and whatnot. And I said, oh my gosh, yes, you were. Beautiful. So capable. But yes. And she goes, going to Greenhouse 17 was the best decision of my life. It's hard though, right? It's hard. hard. And she said it was hard. She said the worst part of it is the resonance sometimes, right? Yeah. Uh, And then there's these comparisons. They got this. And so the expectation for, you know, a no rules program would be that you immediately always inform people of the who that you are as an organization and how people will be treated. Everybody will not be treated the same because the same is not equitable. Equality is not identical, Right. It's individualized. Everybody has unique set of circumstances uh, around their situation. And so when residents begin to understand that it's not how it's going to be, that doesn't mean they don't ever complain. You know, somebody got toothpaste and nobody offered me toothpaste when I came in and you go, well, let me take care of that. I'll get you some toothpaste. And sometimes you can, you know, appease people. And then sometimes you just got to make those decisions, you know, and the ability to explain to people that everybody's different. Yeah. What your family needs is not what that family needs. And I can't discuss that other family, but I hope you'll trust that we are trying to meet everybody's needs the best we can with you, our participant in that, you know, like you're a part of this process. I'm glad you brought up the fairness piece because I think that does come up often with new mm-hmm. people. It's much easier to go, everybody gets this. We have this many cubits of something and everybody gets this amount of those things. And that isn't always what people's needed. Some people need more. Some people need less. Some people are at a different p- place in their journey and their process. So it's not always the same. I will say, though, it's always good to sort of check your judgment and bias, though. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's a time where if you have a few, few folks saying this doesn't seem fair, this doesn't seem right, 
don't immediately get on the defense because maybe our presumption of what people need is a little off skew or we might reward the good family, right? The so-called good, easy to please, easygoing. We might do that or people that we connect with. We try to say we treat everybody the same who's receiving services, but we always sometimes have our favorites or people that we connect with. So I always sort of encourage folks that are listening in, make sure you're always bouncing those ideas off your other staff. Be really open to self-reflect. Look in the mirror, as you often say, to make sure that some of that is coming from genuine fairness and equity versus I might have a little favor and I might be doing a little something over here for this crew. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, we just have well, to we're thoughtful. human in this work too. Absolutely. Which is why I'll you have a team around it. you and that's why you should have case conferences and that's why you should kind of, you know, keep track of what we're doing or not doing and communicate the best we can. It's, you know, communication is always an issue in a domestic violence program, probably anywhere. I don't know that I've ever worked or been anywhere that communication wasn't brought up as an issue somewhere down the road. And when you're serving human beings, that service has a tendency to take over sometimes some of that communication and things fall through the cracks. So some of it's given yourself grace and given other graces. It's also holding each other accountable as a team, as a, you know, as employees, you know, advocates. That's really important that you create relationships where you can have those discussions. So uh, as you would call them, a tree of trust, right? right? Where we can have these really important discussions and challenge each other and call each other out in a loving way, just like we would do our residents, right? Right. We have to be able to do that for each other. And I think most of the time survivors feel very loved and cared for and realize that nothing is going to be the same. And we are human and we will make mistakes and we will own them when we do. And, you know, it's okay to say you're sorry, even if you you never even did anything wrong. It's I say I'm sorry all the time to people that I didn't even do anything. And it's not about me being sorry. I am sorry that whatever happened, whoever did it, whoever didn't do it, whatever that looks like, it is, but it affected you. It impacted you in such a way that it felt like harm to you. Therefore, I am sorry. I'm sorry doesn't mean I'm wrong. I'm sorry means I care and I care about your feelings and I'm validating your feelings and your right to kind of be in that space at the moment. And then what can we do to help move beyond that? Man, those are beautiful, healthy, coping, loving skills that survivors are really going to need when they leave. And what a fabulous thing. And what a fabulous thing that a person feels comfortable enough to say, you've hurt my feelings or I'm mad at you or you did whatever. So don't shut it down. Don't say that what they heard was wrong and that you don't have anything to be sorry about. As you said, take those moments and it really can be a, a strength moving forward. It could be a good coaching, mentoring, and and relationship building time. And it takes time to get there. So I yeah. I, need, I need new advocates to know it can feel very personal. Yeah. It can. And sometimes the attacks look a little personal, right? (laughs) You know, it could be, I'm mad at you or you didn't do, you know, like to blame. And your first gut instinct is to be self-protective and a little self-defensive. I encourage that you just breathe and just let people feel. Their feelings are feelings. They're not always right or wrong. They're just feelings. And when we give people the space to have them, even if they're about us, and even if we know it may not be 100% 100% accurate or not. When we can give that space, that's what we really call de-escalation too. You know, programs that do that the best don't engage. They allow the space. They're not trying to fix it. They're not trying to defend it because that just escalates people's feelings. So if you can just validate their right to their feelings and then once it's calm, then you start to process what we could do better or what maybe we could have done differently. Or that we have done these things and, and that we're not likely to change that. But I'm really grateful that you have enough voice that you trusted us to tell us how you feel. That's perfect. One of the feelings that I think that advocates often have, and again, newer in the field, but I think we still have it, can be a sense of frustration. You know, we might have worked. It's not our work, but I'm just going to use this language. We might have worked really hard. We've set up you know, a treatment facility for someone to go to or new housing for someone to go to or whatever, sobriety, whatever's going on. And then all of a sudden, the victim survivor changes mind and either doesn't take the path that we think is the best path to go to, right? This happened the other day. I was at Case Review and it's like, did all this work? And I really do think it was genuinely coming out of worry. I think there was a genuine worry about the decision that was made. 
but there was a tinge of, I spent two days trying to find all this stuff. And so, do you have any words of wisdoms or advice about frustration and outcomes and letting go, I think, a little bit of, of the outcomes? Well, that's the perfect language right there is letting go of the outcomes. Because my gut reaction to your story was it was two days given to somebody who's probably never had two good days given to them, that they were worthy enough that you spent enough time to try to create a new avenue. Even if I changed my mind, you loved and cared for me enough to try to create a different choice and avenue. I may not be ready for it. Maybe I thought I was, but I'm not now. And I do think that's part of the frustration is when it doesn't frustrate me when you do it. Or sometimes you just go, oh my gosh, we just did all this. But you also know in your heart of hearts that, that that's okay. It's not about me. It's about them. And okay, then it definitely had an impact. We didn't do harm by trying to make somebody's life better. That's A. But I think getting caught into the outcome, when you somehow believe that it's your skill set that makes a survivor successful or not, depending on how you would define that maybe, but it's really probably going to tend to lean you towards not being in this work very long, right? Because we, we're not a part of the outcome. We're part of the journey, but we don't get to be the outcome. It's not our skill set. It's their lives. It's their choices, not ours. All we can do is give what we have while we have it and have influence with it. Beyond that, it's not about us. <laughs> and that's what I go back to. If You, you just got to let go of the outcome. I like, I never really thought about it this way, but we can be really hard on ourselves sometimes as mm -hmm. advocates too. And I do think as you're doing this and you're working with survivors, you sometimes begin to reframe or re reframe maybe their narrative. You know, you have a lot of survivors come in the door and they're feeling very guilty about steps they've done. They feel they've wasted five years of their life with this person. They haven't been a very good parent. They, all these things. And so we begin to reframe their story to show the resiliency and strength. So I really loved when you just did that and you said, why would you look at those two days as wasted two days that you did all this work when really you spent two days and you showed loving compassion for this person and you fought for that person? And why, you believed in them. Why is that a wasted day? It's not a waste. I really like that. It's a beautiful day. Yeah. It's a beautiful and day. I, I need, the longer you do the work, I, I want advocates to know you're not always going to know how people's lives turn out or don't. You just don't. But I will promise you, you will get enough glimpse to begin to realize the small things that made the gravest difference for survivors. It wasn't getting the house. It was the fact that you spent two days trying to get the things for the house. That not getting the house wasn't important. It is the fact that you stopped and listened. It is the fact that you didn't pass by when you could tell on their face that they were not in the best of spaces at that moment, that you just didn't meet and greet and move on so you didn't have to stop and deal with it. It is in the little things that have the longest term impact of feeling love. And you can't feel love. I mean, to truly feel love, you have to be worthy. You have to know that you're worthy of love. And I think that's the beauty of shelters. It's this opportunity to help survivors be in a space where they begin to learn that they're worthy of love without strings. So don't hang on to that disappointment when no. it goes a different route. Oh it's God. not about the outcome. You know, and even though we we're talking a lot about shelter and you just said shelter, this can play out a lot in our court or community advocates Absolutely. too, right? How many times do we work with someone and we're going to get a DVO, no contact order, and we're going to do this. And then you go to court and they go, you know what? I think I have to drop this protective order. So, but you were there. Yeah, with you're going to drop the protective order or they go home or they break yeah. the protective order, right? And you know, they broke the protective order and you're trying to help them understand what will happen if the police see you over there and you need to, you know, so the same thing is we kind of get vested into their outcome and their choices. We are kind of the mouthpiece as advocates. We are the informers to survivors. We are the ones that walk that journey with them, but not for them. So it doesn't matter where you are, whether it's shelter or outreach or courts or community. We have to know where we end and they begin. So you had started in the very beginning and you said, you were giving grace to new advocates a little bit. 
really just showing up, being a little nosy, being caring, being loving. Sometimes that's enough. You're on this evolution of growth, but it takes about three years, Mm -hmm. right? To get some competency, some pretty grounded competency in this work. And so as we just sort of close this up and we start beginning to define as advocates, the who, you know, that capital W, who that we want to be in the work and that evolution of those three years, any, what does that process look like? Why do you, I don't mean a big long piece, but I guess like, what does that three years look like? And what should we really be digging into at this time as we're starting out in this field? Oh, and you don't want a long answer. Okay. So (laughs) I would say, well, there's a couple of things that's come up for me. That first three years is really about being humble and allowing the survivors to be your teachers and your colleagues to kind of be the steering wheel a little bit of the boat, let's say. But who's really going to teach you the survivors? But you need your colleagues just to bounce things off of and help make sure you're in the right path. So that your first year should just be a lot of humility, humbleness, asking questions, engaging, figuring out and getting comfortable in the not knowing and just learning, right? You know, by the time, and everybody's a little different, but, you know, let's say second year for me just really is where people are starting to know how to start to navigate systems and things and feel a lot more comfortable and confident in their work. And it's really that third year, I think, that the light comes on and you go, oh, I get this. And then you really come to terms with the who that you are in this work and that it's not about me and you're comfortable in that. And for those that can get there, you know, I think you'll see a lot of longevity. I do think, and, you know, I speak of this at different times, I do think we have thresholds in this work. And I want to, I use threshold. A lot of people use language like burnout. And I like the language threshold. It's much more positive. It just means you've met your capacity to do this work with empathy and love for others in this setting. You know, there might be other settings that you're ready for or want to try. But I do think that we kind of reach these thresholds by which is our limit of being able to do it. Like we've seen amazing advocates for nine years hit their threshold, you know, and then stay three years too long after that. And you're going, oh, they're lovely, amazing advocates, but they just kind of hit that wall, that threshold that their body, their psyche, their emotional ability, um, kind of hit that wall of where they can go in this particular field. And then we need to be okay to move on from that. We did our service for nine years. You don't have to do it 30 some years to have been an incredible part of this journey and this work. So I want advocates to know that too. Give yourself at least three years of grace and knowing that you're going to make a lot of mistakes. Own your mistakes. Tell survivors, you know, you should tell every survivor, I'm new at this. I'm going to be new at this for the next three years. I'm going to miss things, make mistakes. I'm sorry. But I'm going to love you. I love you. Yes, I'm going to love you. And maybe that's all you're going to get from me because I'm still learning all this other stuff. Right. But that genuineness, that authenticity is exactly what survivors are looking for because they don't have that in other parts of their world. It's all been, you know, gaslighting and manipulation and lies. And so to just have somebody sit and go be real with them about the who that they are that they bring, I think has incredible power and impact for survivors as well. And then to know that, you know, it just takes time and then eventually, you know, just keep tabs on yourself with others on that threshold issue and invite yourself to move forward or continue to stay engaged for as long as, you know, your threshold allows. I haven't quite hit mine yet, so... I'm still here, but I know amazing people who hit theirs in three years or five years. But one of the things you often do is invite feedback, right? You'll say that to me all the time, Diane, if I do this, you know, you need to tell me or, you know, like you always invite feedback. So newer folks in this field, invite feedback. Don't get defensive about it. You know, give feedback in a way that can be, you know, a learning moment. It can be a teaching moment. It's not done to be critical, but it's done to uplift other people's work. Well, we take great pride in this work, I think, or I do. I feel great pride of not a boastful pride, but just a pride that that survivors have allowed me this opportunity to have set alongside their journey with them for a really long time. So this inviting feedback is really for me, I mean, it sounds great that I'm really open and I want feedback and I do. On the other hand, I don't want to do harm. My bigger fear and the reason I want feedback is I don't want to be 
that leader or that person or that advocate who stayed too long, who did harm, who couldn't be present for others in the way that they deserved because I had met my threshold. And sometimes it's hard to see if you're there. So you've got to have trusted folks around you to go, I need you. If you see me slipping and not doing things or, you know, avoiding my work or whatever that may look like, and you can sense it, your colleagues will sense it before you will sometimes. So the feedback is for me is out of fear of doing harm. And there is a distinction. We were talking about this the other day in my office, even of like, how do you know when you just need a little bit of a break, you just need a little bit of a respite. But if you're going on a vacation, you're taking time off and you come right back into it and you've met your your burnout threshold already, you might have a, uh-oh, right? Like then you right, might right. need to- Like if you're like, having a month off because you can't stand to walk in the building for the last six months, that is not a vacation. Yeah. And you are not going to be better after a month. Yeah. You're going to walk in that first Monday after a month and be exhausted all over again. Yes. If you're going on vacation because you got plans and you want to have fun, and needing a little break is not a big deal. You know, everybody needs a day or two here and there. But when you find yourself going to work and going to work and now you can't wait, and I may need some time to really rejuvenate. And you probably are really at that threshold. I, I know very few people who come back from that. Yeah. They try because they think that's what they're supposed to be doing. And, and so I'm not going to be here to judge anybody walking through that because it's, it's a hard journey itself. But I, I do think be cognizant, be cognizant of the where that you are. If, if you need a month off because you're exhausted, you're going to be exhausted that yeah. as soon as you come back. I do. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing work. It's powerful work. It's, it's humbling work, I think was, was your phrase earlier, just being humble in it ask lots of questions, build a team around you that you can trust, that you can bounce ideas off, call each other out. We have a responsibility to the men and women that we serve to always do better, to learn and to grow in it. So always encourage folks to do that. So I think I'm about ready to wrap up unless you have any little last minute. I know we could talk about this for forever and ever and ever, but... Probably. No, I just, you know, grateful for the opportunity. And I know that there are a lot of people been around for a while that are here to help. You're not in this alone. It takes time. All the advice that you would give a survivor, please take for yourself. Thank you, Darlene. So you've been listening to Darlene Thomas, Executive Director of Greenhouse 17. And this is KCADV Certification Series. And you've been listening to Joel One, Expectations and Challenges of Advocacy.